when I think about the next judge, the next president of the United States, uh, I don't know what to say, honestly. I've thought about this a lot. And all I can tell you is, uh, I don't have a good taste in my mouth. I watch a few of the immediate uh, initial debates, and I'm like, yeah, this is entertaining. Like, but I, I, didn't, I didn't show up here to watch entertainment, right? I got this bitter taste in my mouth of, of failures, both sides. And then I, I start thinking down that road, and I think, man, yeah. But I just have a bad taste for leadership because I want something that has both and. Like, man, can I get a person that leads that actually is not a monosyllabic, <laughs> syllabic, I can't even pronounce it. Uh, can, can I not get one person that just highlights only one side or one thing or one? Can you have more? Can you have more than just what? Can you have tough and tenderness? Can you have truth and graciousness? Can you have compassion and justice? And, and why I say this is because I've, I've tasted this myself. I know myself. I know how I failed my wife. I can think of two months ago when I felt her uh, devastatingly, like probably the worst times I've done in the past five years that I've failed her. Where you're like, what have I done? And it's a bitter taste in my mouth for my own leadership. It's also a bitter taste for the leadership I look around, you, uh, around me. But then I think it all comes back to because when I've tasted God's leadership, it's both and, both and, both and, both and. It's not just tough. It's tender as well. It's not just truthful, in your face, blasting all the time. It's also gracious. It's compassionate. But that doesn't let you just go and destroy yourself, but actually compares enough to care about justice. So what I'm telling you from the jump is God is so much better than the gods around, and God is so much better than any judge, president, leader that you can look at. So Judges 1, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath your chair or around you or on a seat. You can grab that one. If you don't have one at all, take that with you. Judges is about that part into the Bible. You'll see Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. That'll help you. Judges 1, okay? Verse 21, I want you to see it. Judges 1, 21. At the same time, uh, and if you're a guest, let me just tell you, we usually just pick up books of the Bible and walk through them. So if you weren't here last week, uh, no recap, okay? This isn't a Netflix series. No recap. Just come on, catch up. All right, you ready? Here we go. Judges 1, 21. At the same time, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. The Jebusites have lived among the Benjaminites in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent spies to Bethel. The town was formerly named Luz. The spies, that's a big deal. That's why it's in parentheses. The spies saw a man coming out of the town and said to him, Please show us how to get into town, and we will show you kindness. Kindness. Man, kindness in Texas lingo, it doesn't do this justice, right? You're thinking about sweet tea. They're thinking about covenant faithfulness, right? You're thinking like, hey, I'm going to be nice to uh, my guest. They're thinking about, I'm going to covenant to you, and we're going to be loyal to you for the rest of our lives. That's kindness. 
When he showed them the way into the town, they put the town to the sword, but released the man and his entire family. Then the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a town, and named it Luz. That is its name still today. So now this sounds familiar. If, you, if you've been with, if you've read Joshua 4, if you've been Judges, and again, if you haven't been with us last week, that's fine. I'll catch you up. I was joking. But if you, if you read Joshua, Judges, this may sound familiar to the spies connecting with Rahab and entering into Jericho. You're like, yeah, this sounds very similar. But the earlier spies that had connected with Rahab made promises to Rahab after she testified that Israel is, that, that the God of Israel is the God of the heaven and earth, that he is the one, and that she's going to get enveloped into the community. So she confesses this, but here there's no call for confessing. No call for confessing Yahweh, the God of the Bible. No, no, no call to join Israel and be a part of its people. Rather, this guy who betrays his own town is allowed to leave and build his life and build his city as a Hittite. So technically, Luz Bethel was conquered, but really it just moved to a new site. Fell. It's a fell. This is not what God has told them to do. Some of you guys are about to be surprised how God responds to their half obedience, but it would be like walking into my house while I'm disciplining my son and you hear it, but you don't know the eight actions and attitudes that got us to that point, right? Like, oh, I just walked in out of this part? What's happening? So back up and first, let's hear what has the father told his kids? What has he directed them? What has he said? This is what's going to look like. This is what I expect for you. This is how you're going to go forward. Well, he backs off and reminds them that he graciously rescued them. Then he gives them the expectations of the covenant of, hey, I've rescued you out of slavery. Now we're going to be in this relationship together. This is what's going to look like. This is what you can expect of me. This is what I'm going to expect of you. So he's their king, so they owe him their allegiance. He's their savior, so they owe him their hearts. Okay? If you don't know this, I'll, tell you, I'll show you. Deuteronomy 7. So this is back before Joshua. And this is the covenant unpacked. Chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hethites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them, and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars. Smash their sacred pillars. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their carved images. Why? For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Keeps going. This is like his vows, his marital vows. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, 
for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to pay directly to the one who hates him. So keep the command, the statutes and ordinances that I am giving you to follow today. And then, not only that, he then answers their objection. If you say to yourself, these nations are greater than I, how can I drive them out? He knows what they're going to say. He knows their excuses. He knows what they're going to bring up. Say, I, can we? Do not be afraid of them. Be sure to remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. The great trials that you saw, the signs and wonders. You think the Canaanites are more powerful than the Egyptians? Do you remember? Do you think the Girgashites, we can't even pronounce their name correctly. We don't care about them. Do you think they're more powerful than the Egyptians? They're not. Remember, great trials that you saw, the signs and wonders, the strong hand and that outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you fear. So these people who've entered into a covenant with the Lord are now making covenants with people, peoples of other gods. But that's not all the failures. That's not all the failures of this campaign. Tribe after tribe, failure after failure. Verse 27. We're just going to read them back to back. At that time, Manasseh failed to take possession of Bethshin and Tanakh and their surrounding villages or the residents of Dor, Ibelium, and Megiddo and their surrounding villages. The Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve, what is that? Forced labor, but never drove them out completely. At that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived among them and Gezer. I don't like saying that. I'm going to stick with Gezer. Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron or the residents of Nuh. So the Canaanites lived among them and served as what? Forced labor. Asher failed out to drive out those residents. Do you see them? The Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they failed to drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Beth Anath. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land. But the residents served as their forced labor. Verse 34, the Amorites forced the Danites into the hill country and did not allow them to go into the valley. The Amorites were determined to stay in Har-Herez, Ajalon, and Shelvim. When the house of Joseph got the upper hand, the Amorites were made to serve as, yeah, forced labor. The territory of the Amorites extended from the Scorpions' ascent. That is from Selah upward. I took you back to Deuteronomy 7 for you to feel the weight of this failure repeatedly. Last week, 
rather than driving out the peoples, they took that king as a hostage and looked around at how did the other peoples treat their captives. And they did to him what the peoples around them did. And here they're doing, again, what other people do, not what God has told them. Do you see this? God's rescued them from slavery. And what are they doing? Enslaving people. Making them forced labor. Why? Well, money wins sometimes. That's why. Money matters more than people. We choose that the economy and convenience matters more than people. That's what they've chosen. How can they actually cultivate this land? How can they make this more prosperous? Not if they get rid of the labor that they could use for free. No, keep them. Make them work. Make them build. You remember how we did it? You remember what we built for the Egyptians. Think what we can make them build. Unfulfilled commitment, half obedience, and compromising tolerance. If you go back to last week, Judah did the best, right? Out of these 12 tribes, Judah does the best, but it's still half obedience, and half obedience is disobedience. Instead of reshaping the world into the Lord's imagination and desire and will, they live in and live with the world and before long become to have the characteristics and habits of all the surrounding nations. Instead of making this the land of the people of God, they become like the people of the land. Making covenants so they can have peace, they can create their peace. Enslaving people so they can boost their economy. Fell after fell after fell. This is a warning to all who claim to be the people of God. That there are deadly consequences for compromise and disobedience. I, I know money can get you a lot of lot of consequences in this society, but there are consequences, deadly consequences for your repeated compromise and disobedience. And so, I want you to think about not not to say hey i'm i'm not like those people how could those people do that but think about how i've made how have i made these little compromises what are the little half obediences that are beginning to build up building up in such a way that now you're beginning to look like people of the west rather than people of jesus and what I mean by the West, I mean Western society. So to, to maybe delineate that or help you think about that, what are the major idols of Western society? If you become a Christian later in life, you know. You experienced. I'll give you a few. Power. Power is a major idol. The desire to get uh, power over people, to get that, to have that sense of uh, I'm good because I'm over or I have this control. Comfort. I mean, we've got people in our midst that just came back from uh, um, 
serving internationally for three years. And you know what's overwhelming to them? The amount of convenience, the amount of options. I drove by five convenience stores this morning to get to the church building. And I don't, I don't live in Weatherford. <laughs> Comfort, freedom, freedom's another major idol. The idea of freedom, the thing of I'm going to be free and what that ends up being for our society is I'm free from everything. I can do as I please. I have no king. I do what's right in my own eyes. Success. That's a major idol. Climbing the ladder. It looks like a lot of you in your workplace wrestling with that. Security. That could be many things. It manifests in many ways. It could be a huge savings account. It could also be you don't ever do anything difficult. You keep just to yourself and safe and secure. Money. Money is a major idol. Sex. But even like those good things, we can turn them into idols. Worship them bigger than God. Even family. Family, it's not... A major idol, I would say, in the West, but it's it's one of those things you'll see. You'll see when you when you remove God from a situation, there's this vacuum that something's going to get pulled into. And if you don't believe me, I'll just give you two examples: Parenthood. This is us. Okay. Done. So, what are the major idols? Really, what it looks like is each individual person. At this point in the West, we don't have really major gods that are different. Like, I'm going to go worship Asherah. I'm going to go worship Gergamesh. No, I'm going to worship myself. Meaning God is not God. I am God, and I can make myself into whatever I desire. That's the major idol. Now, that's why I said Judges is so relevant because that's the same culture that's happening in judges there's no king and everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes but the warning of judges is what's the end what's the end of that life what's the end for that society to live that out what's the end the claim is we'll we'll shed the old hate from the past and live more free but but if you look at recent events are we are we more flourishing in the West? It really depends on your interpretive lens, how you view it, honestly. My opinion, no. Not at all. Why? I'll give you a quick history lesson. In his, I'll give you a quick history lesson. The past 70 years and 30 seconds. Through the sexual revolution and the invention of contraceptives, sexual intercourse was separated from procreation. Sexual intercourse was separated from marriage of God's good design of one flesh. Sexual intercourse was separated from having children, even from the weight of possibly procreating. There was the attention of no-fault divorce. Marriage was separated from what? A lifelong covenant, commitment. Through the invention of abortion, human life was separated from conception. The child was no longer being knit by God in the mother's womb. It was a part of the woman's body. 
and therefore with her personal autonomy she could do whatever she wanted. Now through the invention of hormone treatment and gender reassignment surgery, biological sex is separated from what? Gender identity. This is where the West is. This is where we are living in the West. Most Western folks worship themselves instead of God. They set the standard for themselves. They decide if their desires are good or bad. They try to recreate themselves into an image in their mind. What I'm saying is, I don't think you have any, any worry about drifting into worshiping Asherah. I think you should be terrified of drifting into this. I think you should be scared a little bit of looking around about your friends and the people that you've known for 20 years and you saw them follow Jesus for many years and now they're like, nope, not into them. Why? Not, not because Muhammad came along. It was like, here's a better God. No, subtly the culture said, here's a God. And you know how enticing he is? It's you. You can be your own God and do whatever you want and set your own standard and make yourself, recreate yourself. If you got some money, you got some technology, recreate yourself into whatever you imagine you could be. But rather than that, God's people are awed by God and joyfully worship him. God's people look to God's word for standards, not themselves. God's people look to God's heart to decide if their desires are good or bad. God's people will train hard to join the Spirit's work in them, forming them what? Not into the image of our own creation, but into the image of Jesus. That's where we're going. So, so reading the book of Judges is an act of asking God to expose us. You, you should feel a bit vulnerable here. Over the next few months, and if you're not, it's probably because you're like, I love comfort and no one's going to take it away from me. But humility would say, God exposed me. The idols in my hearts that I can't see that aren't explicit, would you help me tear those down? Would you help me break those down? It also will expose our habits and practices that match up with that worship of ourself rather than the worship of Jesus. God is the Lord. He's Yahweh. He wants your whole life, your whole heart. He's jealous for you like an affectionate husband. He doesn't want pieces of you. He doesn't want certain days of the week. He wants your life. He doesn't want half obedience. He wants it half discipleship. He doesn't want half of your affections. He wants you, all of you, to not be divided between five different leaders, five different lovers. No, Jesus, you're my lover. You're my leader. You're my judge. And if you're like, man, I can't do that. Life is hard. Yes, it is. The life to actually stand up and walk behind Jesus and follow him daily with your relationships, your work, hard. Tim Keller answers that objection from Judges. He says, it's not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings or from worshiping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in his strength. When we rely on ourselves and base our walk with God on our own calculations instead of simply obeying, we find ourselves making decisions like the Judites. Othniel attacked a city in God's strength. 
the tribe of Judah concluded they could not likewise, they could not do likewise in their own. It is halfway discipleship, and Judges will show us that it leads to no discipleship at all. The warning to us is clear. So as we go to chapter 2, last week I told you that I told you that half obedience is disobedience. But what you'll learn from this is disobedience hurts. That's how this world is wired. Disobedience hurts. And if you're a parent here, you've you got to tell your kids this. You've got to help them. You've got to show them. Sometimes you've got to show them more than words can express that disobedience hurts there are consequences chapter 2 verse 1 so fell 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 chapter 2 verse 1 the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum <laughs> I just love that if you don't know Gilgal is the most recent place where God has covenant to them and said you're my people and I'm your God this is what I've done for you and the messenger leaves this covenant place. Like, the only reason that the, the Bible includes this is to show you that the messenger is coming from the most recent presence of the Lord. And he comes to where? He comes to where they are. Where they're weeping. Bochum. They named it Bochum. Why? Because it means weeping. They enshrined it. He says, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You're not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What have you done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord has spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named the place Bochum and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. What do other peoples do when they fell? I really don't know. Other than my conversations with folks. Because other nations, other gods don't have eyes and ears and mouths. Psalm 115 makes that clear. It means other gods can't hear and speak and see. And you're like, well, I'm my own god. How do you know if you really failed, if you're the set standard for yourself? And if you do for yourself, what do you do with that? What do you do with that guilt? What do you do with changing? Israel, Israel's God speaks, and he has spoken, and they're not left guessing what is his will. The angel comes from Gilgal, that literally means to roll back. They named their cities after what the Lord had done, and what he'd done, he'd rolled back their sin, he had forgiven them, had he entered into covenant with them because he set his love on them. 
And so what we see here from the messenger's mouth is that the Lord, Yahweh, is a faithful, rescuing, covenant-keeping God over and over again. But then comes the, the accusations, the charges. But you're not a faithful people. I'm a covenant-keeping God, but you are not a covenant-keeping people. And that's the tension of judges. That's the tension of this whole story. How will God be faithful to an unfaithful people? Will He judge them and wipe them away? How will a holy God dwell with an unholy people? What about His holiness? How is He going to deal with that? Because he's already told them, don't make covenants with people of the land and tear down the altars. And they make covenants and they don't tear down the altars. They made excuses to disobey. When the Israelites observed the wealth of the Canaanites, the, the people of the land, there's so much there. So much kind of offered by the gods of the Canaanites. There's fertility. If you go back to the spies, what they say, it's a land flowing with, yeah, it's a very awesome place, milk and honey, yeah, land flowing, right? So they see the, the success, they see the fertility, they see the money, they see the crops, they see like this is, this is a great place, there's prosperity here, there's security here, but, but Yahweh turns their thinking against them, and rather, than them finding new freedom in the religious structures of the Canaanites, the Israelites would become caught in the trap of the gods, like a fly in a spider's web. You think they're going to give you freedom, but it's actually going to lead to enslavement. The West, very similar to Canaanite land, offers so much. Western society offers so much fertility, prosperity, security. But to find freedom in the gods of our society will only lead to enslavement. Idols, idols are terrible salesmen, not really. Idols are wonderful salesmen. Because they promise to free you, but what they always end up doing is enslaving you. If you worship money, you'll end up becoming a slave to it. It'll dictate your actions. It will own you. And you'll say things like, playing with my money is playing with my emotions. You'll say things like that. If you worship sex, you'll be a slave to it. It'll control your thoughts and actions. It'll own you and grind you in the cycle of satisfaction, promise, and joy unfulfilled. Left feeling empty and, empty and hollow. If you worship control, it'll end up controlling you making you hyper-vigilant, anxious, and demanding. And you could say, I've got excuses too. You can join in and say, we've got excuses to disobey, to half-obey. Excuses abound, but God's grace superabounds. Think about this. The things that we say, hey, I, I was going to really do what you said, Lord, but I'm really going to start working on that but. I use things like I'm sleepy, I'm hangry, you know. I'm only rude and harsh because I haven't put more carbs in my belly. That's why. 
I've heard, you know, I can't love people because I'm an introvert. I can't uh, do this because I'm an extrovert. I hear my parents were this way. I think another Western thing that just become more and more predominant that we should be aware of is that you can drift into a victim mentality when you're more than a conqueror. Where the, you can begin to see everything through the lens. You can interpret everything that happens through that lens. A victim, and then it becomes an easy way to excuse behavior, excuse attitude. Another excuse I hear is that, but it's what I desire, it's what I want. Like, why would God give me the desire if, I, if it's not good? I think you missed the real fall of the fall. How broken this place really is. Excuses are like in and out. They're everywhere, but they don't matter. Uh, <laughs> excuses don't cover disobedience. Did you hear me? Enjoy the in and out joke, but here you go. Excuses don't cover disobedience. Excuses don't deal with real guilt. Excuses don't bring you, draw you near back to a sweet Jesus who loves you and deals gently with you. So God disciplines them. And discipline hurts. Disobedience hurts. He'll not drive out these people. There'll be thorns in your sides and the gods are going to be a trap for you is what he says. So they weep. They enshrine the place as weeping, and they offer sacrifices. Now, based on what I see, based on what I understand, this seems genuine. This seems like a genuine repentance of our sin before the Lord. It may be we got caught. It may be broken over the consequences. They may be broken over the but it seems genuine. They seem to grieve their sin. They seem to turn to the Lord. But really, what, what, what I can say, what I can say, is that this is the only act of repentance like this from the nation in this book. Remember what I told you last week? The book of Judges just grows darker and darker into darkness. It just, the hope grows dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. It's the opposite of Acts. It starts big and goes small. Acts starts small and goes more joy, more hope, more glory. The kingdom is moving. The kingdom is progressing. Repentance is a, a, a one act. Repentance becomes a way of life. Why? Because on this of the cross, every failure is an opportunity to enjoy Jesus. Every sin, every failure in your life is an opportunity to enjoy Jesus. Why? Because you can look up by faith and see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Because we've failed to live in obedience to the Father, we deserve eternal punishment. Like, not, not, not this, just not drive out the nations and they're going to be a trap for you. No, no, punishment. Feel the weight of that. Look into the infinite darkness of the judgment. And then lift your eyes to see Christ, your Christ, your sacrifice 
light and love and joy flood into view. This is how we enjoy Christ. We bring our failure to him and receive his grace. That's how we respond. We don't respond like the nation. We don't respond like other people of like, oh, we failed. What do I do with it? Moan a little bit. Forget about it. No. We respond by relating to Jesus, to the Son of Man, to our man in heaven. And what is that like? Well, just think. What is Jesus doing right now? He's advocating with the Father, but he's also sitting down because his work is finished. He's not busy doing really anything. Because it's finished. So when you fail, when you sin, can I encourage you to follow Jesus and maybe stop? Stop ourselves from trying to prove ourselves and our sin in response to how we deal with our guilt is so often like other people not, not like Jesus or not how Jesus shows us we default to try and win God's approval through our actions we start getting real busy trying to compensate for that failure or to make up for it or to address it or to cover it if you're doing things to impress God or to impress other people then stop Rest. Relax. Enjoy God's grace because it is finished. In our failure, in our sin, John Owen, he urges us to lay down our sins at the cross of Christ upon his shoulders. He speaks of this as face great and bold venture. And this is what he says in communion with God. He says, ah, Jesus is bruised for my sins and wounded for my transgressions. And the chastisement of my peace is upon him. He has thus made sin for me. Here I give up my sins to him that he is able to bear them. He requires me to open my hands, release my grip, and let him deal with my sin. And that I heartily consent to. I love that line. Now, some of you guys think this is what happens when someone first becomes a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, this is it. This is what we're calling you to. Inviting you to take on joy, love, and peace from Jesus. To open your hands, give him what all you have. Your sin, your brokenness, your failures. But it's not just what happens when you become a Christian. Oh, and as this is every day's work, I know not how any peace can be maintained with God without it. Every day we need to stop trying to make things right with God. We need to let go of our sin and hand it to Jesus. Get busy doing nothing. Think of your sin, the sin that you committed today this week the sin that feels like you commit every day then a man imagine handing them one by one to Jesus that one that one that one open your hands release your grip say with Owen here I give up my sins to him that is able to bear them 
Feel the weight lift from your heart. Feel your shoulders relax. Jesus has taken your burden and borne it at the cross in your place. Every day Jesus says to us in the gospel message, this is what he tells you. He kind of starts off every day. This is from Owen as well. He starts off with a deal. I'll do you a deal. I'll take your failures, your sin, your guilt, your bitterness, your curse, your wrath, your death, and I'll give you love, joy, life, righteousness, peace. Owen called it blessed bartering. (laughs) You get to unload trash, like a storage war trash. Like all that stuff jammed and nothing in it is nice. It's all trash. You got to unload that to Jesus and what do you give, get in return? And so, so what do you do when you fail, when you sin? Our job is to gladly accept the deal. That's your job. To hand over your sin and receive Christ's love. And you're like, what? Every day. All right. I've, I brought up three objections. I've, I've answered them all. This is the third one. Sorry. I've answered two. Here's three. From Owen. He'll, he'll, he'll answer it. What? Shall we daily come to Jesus with our filth, our guilt, our sins? Think about that. Is that what really, is that really what Jesus wants? To have our mess giving to him day after day after day after day after day. In our mind, we think he's exhausted of us. We think he's worn out by us. We think like he can't handle it. Not another one. Owen's answer. There is not anything that Jesus Christ is more delighted with than his saints should always have communion with him in this business of giving sin, giving failure, giving brokenness, giving idolatry, and receiving joy, life, peace, righteousness and so if you feel like me a repeated failure if you feel like the judges the people the judges repeated failing in this worldview, you actually have hope you have someone that will actually stick with you and endure with you and bear with you and keep taking and taking and taking and taking and taking and taking and taking your mess and giving you his life, 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 life. The, this side of the cross, the, the Christian life is a growing awareness of God's holiness and a growing awareness of our sinfulness and a trust and love in Jesus that bridges the gap. That's how Paul goes from, I'm the least of the apostles to the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. Do you, think, do you think Paul became more sinful as he walked with Christ for decades? I don't. Do I believe and trust that he grew in his awareness of his sinfulness throughout his life in light of God's holiness, which made him treasure Jesus all the more? I absolutely believe that. And this grace, 
from Jesus empowers us to say yes to him more and more where the trend becomes more and more yes, not more and more failure. Saying no by his grace to the excuses. Empowering us to cozy up next to him and enjoy our God more than any other God and rest content in his love and truth. That this is the leader I want. It's really the leader I long for. Not one that's just true, true, truth and no grace, but is full of grace and truth. One who's not all justice, 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 sees everything through the lens of justice, but somehow holds justice holy and also holds compassion holy. So the truth is you're a failure. And that hurts. It stings. Some of you won't even take it down. So want to prove yourself on your own efforts and accomplishments that you won't even take bad news for what it is. But if you'll take the good news, then I can tell you the good news. The good news is you have a leader that's both and, both and, both and. So what I'm going to invite you to is not to do anything but open your hands and release your sin to Jesus. Father, we, we do this. We come to you with our failures, with our sin, with our idolatries. Disobeyed and turned from you. Father, I ask that we would come to you with our, our sin and hand them over to you one by one and by faith receiving that deal in Christ's name I pray